Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. And I would come home every night and like tell my wife, like, if this is what success feels like, sign me up for more failure. Like, it was killing me. To use this to justify spending less time with the family (laughs) or... It's so interesting because this is related to events that happened to me today. So earlier today, I apparently did something that was against my lease. So literally, <laughs> I got thrown out of my apartment today. I have to vacate my apartment. I just oh my gosh! Yeah, oh, I'm was, sorry. No, it's okay. It actually works out for the best. So. I've got uh, Charles Duhigg in the house. Charles, welcome. Thanks for having me. Charles, I'm so excited for you to be here because, A, you wrote this massive best-selling book, The Power of Habit, and now you just came out with another book, Smarter, Faster, Better, The Secrets of Being Productive in Life and Business. I feel like in the modern world, a book titled that and also subtitled The Secrets of Being Productive in Life and Business, this is like the Bible right now. <laughs> like, what else do we want in life? We don't want enlightenment. We just want to be more productive. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Ho- hopefully it brings some enlightenment too. <laughs> I don't know. Everybody just, they, that's the main question I get in life. Like, how do I avoid procrastination? How do I retain more information from the from books or movies or whatever? How do I... Uh, uh, you know, get more productive at my job, focus more on things I'm interested in, uh, and and so on. This is like the main questions people ask about their lives. I th- absolutely, and, and I think it's not unusual that they are right because I think that we are living during this time where we were promised kind of a utopia that has failed to materialize <laughs> through nobody's fault. But but we have all these devices and these things and these technologies that are amazing, and they were supposed to make things easier, and yet we find ourselves kind of feeling beholden to them, right? Like. Nobody on earth would say, I don't want to do email anymore, but there's no one else on earth, I think, who would say, you know, I just love email. I love coming home and seeing like a hundred emails. Although, if you think about it, like think about a hundred years ago as opposed to now. Uh, and and I want to get into the topics of your book, but I think kind of the macro story around it is very interesting what we're talking about now. E- emails literally save lives. Like instead of having to like, oh, I have to be home waiting by the phone because I'm getting an important call. Now it's like all day long I can get the important messages I would have been waiting for a hundred years ago. So why isn't e- why don't we all love email? Well, I so I think there's two answers. I think the first is that we are living through a period of econ- an economic revolution that economists at this point basically agree is on par with like the agrarian revolution and the industrial revolution, right? And when you're living through that, 
In retrospect, that looks exciting. During the period you live through it, and we know this from diaries, from those previous upheavals, there's just a huge amount of anxiety because nobody really knows exactly what the future is going to be. Nobody knows what is right and what is wrong. And so you have this, what's called an, an opportunity famish situation where we all feel like if we don't seize every single opportunity, we might fall behind, right? This is fear of missing out. This is why this is a thing right now. And the the reaction to that... I, I like the phrase opportunity famish. It's great, isn't it? Because it sort of suggests that like you can be in this famine where you're surrounded by plenty, but you still feel hungry all the time. And, and that's exactly what's happening right now is that everyone sort of feels this level of anxiety. Also, we haven't worked out the etiquette yet of things like email. And, and on top of that, we have a brain that was designed for a very different world. You know, it... Uh, until about 150 years ago, the ability to multitask was in some ways the killer app, right? If a millennia ago, if you were someone who could plant crops and look for predators at the same time, you had a huge advantage over someone who could just plant crops or just look for predators. But now, particularly with what's gone on in the last 30 years, we have to be so much more picky about what we multitask on. And as a result, we have a brain that is designed to sometimes have glitches when we're surrounded by things like smartphones and email and the ability to be constantly connected to other people. No, it's really true. Like, look, I'll admit it. I mean, I've I've read your book now twice over in preparation for this podcast. But while I was reading your book, I also every few minutes would play a few moves in backup and <laughs> I'd check emails, I would check stocks, so what's happening on Facebook. So so my phone would ring. And, and did you like that? Did you feel happier because you were doing all those things at once? I, happy is a strange word. It's not like I was happy or sad from it. I mean, I, I finished the book, I played backgammon, and I responded to emails. <laughs> so all things I enjoy doing. So it's not happy or sad, but just like if I wanted to just focus on one thing, you know, I kind of... I kind of had to apply the principles in your in your book to focus. I had to remind myself I'm reading a book about focus. I got to <laughs> focus on this book, which by the way is sort of what your book suggests. Like I had to give myself a why. Like it would be stupid for me to come to this interview without at least saying I was able to focus on your book. <laughs> Well, and, and what's interesting is my guess is that you have a number of contemplation devices in your life, that you have built these small habits or these rituals or these patterns into your life that force you to be able to manage that multitasking, to be able to to reflect on what are the right goals. Right? Maybe. Like what? Well, okay, so so if you think about it like a to-do list in many ways, the, the wrong way to use a to-do list is just to list a bunch of tasks. Right, and you mentioned that, like, don't list just easy tasks just so you have the easy pleasure to, to scratch them off, which, by the way, I used to do, but I don't do that anymore. That's exactly right, and, and psychologists actually call that using a to-do list for mood repair rather than productivity, right? But, but, but let me challenge you, and I'm, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, no. I'm a little bit of an interrupter, I get really curious. On other parts, you do kind of suggest this idea of celebrating small victories, breaking tasks down into smaller chunks, and with a to-do list with easy items like, okay, um, return one phone call or one email, th- that helps me to celebrate small victories. I get that dopamine shot by doing it, and it lets me continue the to-do list. Absolutely, and you should have that. You should have part of a to-do list that tells you what to do next, right, so that you don't have to make a decision every single minute of every day. But you need to pair that with a contemplation device, right? Right. So that the, your to-do list isn't just a list of tasks. It's something that forces you to think about your priorities. That's why researchers say that at the top of your to-do list, you should put your biggest ambition, your stretch goal, right? What do I really want to get done today or this week or, you know, this month? Something that's forcing you to ask yourself, as I, as I check off this task, as I give myself a little reward for getting this thing done, 
is it actually getting me closer to my bigger goal? Uh, that, that makes a great point because, like, oh, just as an example, my stretch goal for today, and this is in your SMART acronym, which you mentioned in the book, but my stretch goal for today was I wanted to have a kick-ass podcast with Charles Duhigg. <laughs> so then I had small, I'm able to break that into smaller tests, like, okay, am I... Um, you know, really going through the book again? Am I going through my notes? Am I uh, uh, scheduling time to eat a couple hours beforehand so I, I have energy for this? So all these things were related to my stretch goal. That's exactly right. And, and what's interesting about that is that when you describe that kind of a to-do list, what you're describing is this system that forces you to think ahead. Right, that forces you to take a second and say, "Okay, look, I want to do. I want to have this this podcast. I need to eat a couple of hours ahead of time." Now, we know that both of us could be so busy that we would miss eating. And in fact, like I, when I came in today, I was asking for water because I didn't drink any water today. Because yeah, I was you looked really dehydrated. Running. I was worried about you. <laughs> I was running from meeting to meeting, right? And like that's kind of the point. Like you're a very smart guy. It doesn't seem like you should need to remind yourself to eat, but. In contemporary life, you can get so busy that it's easy to mistake busyness for productivity and to not actually remember, I need to eat two hours ahead of time so I have the energy because my biggest goal is having enough energy to do this great podcast. Well, you know, you you made a really good point just then. Um, we often confuse busyness for productivity. And you see this in the corporate workplace more than anywhere else where everyone kind of has to like move staplers around on their desk so they're busy, but <laughs> they're not actually getting things done. And I really loved your topic on, you talked a lot about motivation in the workplace and you gave a ton of examples. I, I think throughout the book, actually, kind of two themes I got the most out of it, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, is, you know, have motivation at the lowest levels of, let's say, an organization. So the employees need to be motivated just as much or more than the CEOs and the managers. And we could talk about how that could happen personally as well. And then the other thing that was really fascinating to me, because this has been a theme of, a, of lately for me of a lot of podcasts, it seems, is experimentation. So we should all, um, and this is part of how we get personal power, is if we've experimented enough with different aspects of focus and productivity so that we understand at a deeper level what will make us more focused and productive. Is this a kind of a fair... That's absolutely right. And that second point is really important because... What's interesting is sometimes people ask, so what's the silver bullet for productivity? Is it like meditating or is it, you know, running and exercising or is it eating more healthily, getting more sleep? But there's a thousand prescriptions out there, right? And the answer is that the research says there is no silver bullet. There is no one thing that works for everyone. But what producti what the most productive people tend to do is they tend to cycle through different systems and then pay attention to what works, so people who What do you mean by cycle through different systems? Like so, give me a specific example. So so for instance for a week they might try meditating. And it might be that meditation helps them like kind of get focused on their goals. It might also be super duper boring, and which is what, what how I feel about meditating. And then for another week, they try running and exercising, and they see. And then for another week, they try getting eight hours of sleep a night. And for some people, eight hours of sleep makes you more productive. And for other people, it's a waste of time because you're losing two hours that you could use doing things that you actually enjoy. But what the difference between every the most productive people and everyone else is that the most productive people say, "Look, I'm going to try this, and I'm going to pay attention to what happens." and then learn from it. And if and if meditation doesn't work for me, that doesn't mean that it's a bad idea or a failure. That means I ran an experiment and I just learned something that I can use. You know, let me let me um take do an analogy here. So it reminds me of uh Anders Ericsson and mm -hmm. and who developed the so-called 10,000 hour rule. So if you do 10,000 hour 10,000 hours of dedicated practice in any field, you'll become one of the best in the world in that field. But he's very 
quick to point out that, that it's not practice, it's dedicated practice. And part of dedicated practice, again, is just trying many different things and, and breaking it down into smaller and smaller chunks to see what works and what doesn't work. Absolutely. And part of dedicated and practice... It's all, almost like you're trying to get people to do 10,000 hours of dedicated practice to improve the productivity in their lives. I, I think in many ways, and, and an important component of dedicated practice is that it includes failing, right? That if you are not actually pushing yourself to a point where you're failing at least a portion of the time that you're practicing, then you're not actually pushing yourself hard enough. Failure, we, we have this tendency to look back on the decisions we've made and see them as binary outcomes, right? I married this person. It, it was destined to be, they were exactly the right person for me. And like, that was a great idea. Or we got divorced and we were never supposed to be married. And it, we know that that's not actually how life works. Life is like a probability curve of distributions, right? So, so yeah, you married this person and, and they did work out pretty well. But if you really think about it, maybe there were five other people where like it could have worked out better. And maybe there are 30 other people that it wouldn't work out of quite so well. Are we going to talk about your current marriage right now? <laughs> no, my, my current marriage is pretty good. <laughs> okay. But that's the point is that if you look at your choices as experiments, then you have this opportunity to learn so much from all of them. If you look at them as purely binary outcomes or, or destined events, then you're not really squeezing them for all the information that they contain. It, it's so funny. And, and and by the way, your chapter on probabilistic thinking was my favorite because oh, also I'm a, I'm a big fan of poker and Annie Duke, who you described and. and in the in the chapter, but why do you think? I think a lot of people do fail at probabilistic thinking. They think uh, they think this one bad thing can happen, and they just assume it has equal chances of everything else instead of realizing, oh, there's only a one in a thousand chance that will happen. Like, why do you think people kind of gravitate to the worst case scenario rather than saying, okay, well, here's the probabilities and how I should act accordingly? I think they gravitate to the worst case scenario and the best case scenario. So, so my the favorite thing I lo- love about Annie. Um, Annie Duke, the poker player, is she was in a cognitive science PhD program. She's like literally months away from graduating with her PhD, and she drops out because the anxiety is so intense in her life that basically she has to be hospitalized. She keeps on having these physical reactions. And then she moves to Montana, and her brother says, why don't you become a poker player? And she just to pass time, she starts doing this, and she finds that at the poker table, she's so much calmer, right? She never feels this anxiety. And it's because at a poker table, as you know, you basically have to figure out what do I know and what do I not know? What are the realistic odds that this hand's going to work out or not? Now, compare that to how most of us think about our past or our lives or what might happen in the future. And we tend to either over-imagine success or over-imagine failure and catastrophization. And the reason why is because we don't get exposed in our life to to a full data set of what can actually happen. All of us, when our friend tells us that they're going to get married, I'm talking about marriage a lot today, but when when a friend says, oh, you know, I'm going to get married, we always say like, oh, like tell me about the proposal. How did you decide to get married? What happened? What, where where's it going to take place? When a friend tells us they're going to get divorced, we never say, oh, tell me about the decision to get divorced. Where are you going to go to sign the divorce papers? We tend to stare at success more than we stare at failure. And as a result, we tend to demonize failure. We tend to be scared by it and to overplay it in our heads. But also, we tend to think that success happens more frequently than it actually does. And if you're trying to inform your instincts, if you're trying to to become someone who can sort of estimate what's more or less likely to happen— if your if your data set, if your your priors are based on staring too much at success and being scared of looking at failure, you're going to estimate 
the future, you're going to forecast incorrectly. Well, but let me play slight devil's advocate. There's an evolutionary psychology component to this, which is if I was walking in the jungle 50,000 years ago and I heard the leaves rustle, uh, I should assume, my ancestors did assume the worst case scenario. I know this because they ran. And otherwise, (laughs) there was the slight, one of them, there was a slight chance they would have been eaten by the lion. That may, that probably was not there, but one case he could have been there. But in every case, fortunately, my ancestors ran, and yours did as well. And But now we live in this modern world, but the, our brain hasn't caught up yet. So there's this kind of evolutionary psychology component to assuming the worst as well, as opposed to forcing ourselves to think probabilistically. That's that's totally fair. And, and in psychology, they call this the calibration issue, right? Like, am I both being accurate in what I'm forecasting, but am I also calibrating the odds of my, my forecast being correct or incorrect? Now, with, so you have to remind yourself of that. You have to remind yourself of that. But what, here's what's interesting to me is you're right. In a world where survival is our one concern, then overreacting to every leaf rustling is a great idea. But the problem is that it we shouldn't actually behave as if survival is the top goal, right? Because for most of us, it isn't. We're willing to take risks all the time. We're willing to drive cars because it's a more efficient way to get to, to, to where we want to go. We're willing to fly in planes. We're willing to eat fatty foods because they're tasty, even though we know that they might impact our lives, uh, our lifespans. And so the question then becomes, given that I've already chosen to have other goals besides pure survival, how do I start shaping my decision-making to reflect that my deepest goals are enjoying myself, not being anxious about every rustling leaf of pi- er, pile of leaves? So so how can I start to incorporate this into my life? Like, let's just take the experimentation part. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, listening to this. I'm on my way to work at, uh, you know, some job that I've had for, for 20 years. How do I start experimenting in my life to A, maybe increase my sense of well-being and freedom and B, uh, start to be more productive? Okay, so here's the th- here's the, the two steps you have to do. The first one is if to run an experiment, you have to know what an expected outcome is, what your hypothesis is. And that means that you need to sort of visualize what you actually want to get done in, say, every hour of the upcoming day. So take a moment, and I actually do this on the subway every morning. Take a moment and just think about 9 to 10, 10 to 11, 11 to 12. What do you want to try and get done during those three hours? And then say to yourself, okay, what's my plan to try and get that done, right? If I want to write a memo, do I need to turn off the email? The same way that you were thinking you need to eat lunch in order to like do a great, a great interview. Come up with some variable that you're going you're gonna to try and apply to that goal. Now, it's not a perfect scientific system. You're not going to be testing various variables, but you're coming up with some thesis about how you're going to get closer to that goal. And then at 10 o'clock, Look at the past hour and ask yourself, am I closer to how I expected this hour to go or am I farther away? And if I am farther away, that's not a bad thing. That means you just ran an experiment and you can figure out what kept you from your goal. Now, maybe your goal was an unrealistic goal. Maybe you thought you were going to write a memo in an hour that should take three hours. But now at least you know how to set aside three hours for that thing. Or maybe you wrote it in 45 minutes and then you just wasted, <laughs> you then you still went on Facebook to reward yourself and, you know, an hour and a half later, you're still like screwing around on Facebook. Well, again, that's not a failure, right? Because you just learned something, the memo takes a lot less time than you think you did. You need to set an alarm for, for how much you, in, to cut you off on Facebook. So this is really interesting because you're not necessarily, uh, and, and I agree with this point of view, you're not saying cut off Facebook, cut off email. You're suggesting basically a methodology of, of deciding, well, how much 
Facebook can I, or how much of these things can I have in my life and still achieve my goal as quickly as possible? Um, so you're, you're, you're encouraging experimentation, failure, learn, repeat, uh, rather than saying, get rid of email, turn off your phone, you know, all these hardcore things that are actually hard to do. And this is similar to kind of, you discuss this in a different way in the power of habit, but in this case, it's more focused on, um, you know, directly in- increasing focus and motivation and so on. And I think what it's ultimately saying is be like half an inch more thoughtful, right? Be a little bit more deliberative. We all live in a world where the opportunity for reactive thinking, where just reacting to other things, is almost infinite. So force yourself. Come up with systems, habits that make it easier to just take a moment and reflect. Am I making the right choice right now? Am I getting closer to the goal that I actually want? And, and again, to come back to email, I was talking to um, this guy, Tim O'Reilly, who, who lives out in San Francisco. Great I know guy. Tim very yeah, well. Tim's a fantastic guy. And Tim said, here's the problem with email. It's that people use their email inbox as a to-do list. But it's a to-do list that you have given everyone else on Earth permission to add tasks to, right? Nobody would say that that's the right way to come up with a to-do list, to let anyone, any stranger, add some task. So so, so an interesting, and I want to hear what, what, what Tim finished saying, but it struck me as an experiment I can do because I certainly open my inbox to let other people to define what yeah. I should do. I could basically have an auto-reply. I can experiment with having an auto-reply saying, thank you for writing. I may never respond to you, <laughs> but I promise I will try and do my best. And I can see if this results in a better a better outcome might be people like me more or I would re- actually return more emails or I, I don't know, I'm somehow more productive in writing. I get more writing done or whatever. I, I love that. Here's the other experiment I think you should run. Have an auto-reply that says, thank you for your email. I want you to know I delete 90% of my emails. If this is really important, please call me. Or if this is really important, please email me two more times. Times, right? So, like, just That's experiment great. to try and figure out, like, if I raise the transaction cost for someone else, is it actually going to change how they communicate with me? And what's interesting is, if you look at telephone usage, you'll see this is exactly what happened as a social etiquette. So there was a big problem in the 1950s and early 1960s that people would call each other for the most minute things. And there's all these diaries from that period of someone saying, like, my phone is ringing all the time. I can't handle all the phone calls coming in. And then essentially this kind of etiquette emerged, which is weird when you think about it because we now have cell phones, so it's even easier for people to call us. An etiquette emerged where if a friend called you to ask you some dumb question that they could look up on their own, you would be kind of pissed at them, right? Like, we would never call each other for something that dumb. And in fact, we've included a social transaction cost that when they call you, they have to make chit-chat for like five or ten minutes. They can't just get straight to the question. That's because we've tried to, we have created as a society some type of uh, gravel in the road around phone calls so that they only are made when they're actually important. But email's been around now, like, let's say 30 years. Not to everybody, but like when email was starting to get popular, I was an undergrad and a grad student, so we were emailing each other. So I've been emailing for 30 years now, and I don't see any... I don't see the etiquette getting better. Well, 30 years isn't actually that long. So it, so after electricity was popularized, it took companies about 40 or 50 years to figure out how to actually use electricity instead of steam power to improve their productivity. Hmm. 30 years is about the length of time that we would expect to see another generation come along that takes the technology for granted and starts responding in an etiquette-based way. Well, what's interesting is I see I have uh, 17-year-old and 14-year-old daughters, and I see how they use email, which is they don't use email. Like, I cannot email them. They've gotten back to text. 
Uh, so, so now email, so text is obviously smaller. So they basically, they, they've increased their productivity and eliminated the small chat of email by just texting sentences back and forth. That's fascinating. And I'll bet you that the, like, because I'll bet you that they have an easier time ignoring texts than we do ignoring emails, right? They're actually finding some way to add a transaction cost or to add an etiquette around it. Because with text, it's not like you can keep track of like an inbox the same way as easily mm. as you can with an yeah. email inbox. I mean, Slack's the same thing, right? The, one of the reasons I think people like Slack is because it doesn't present you with an inbox. You don't feel like you have a pressure to actually respond to getting something because it's not a direct communication. They, We are actually finding this etiquette. It, societies have this amazing ability to parse out how to make things better. The key is that there should that individuals also can do this on their own and oftentimes it's about forcing ourselves to think a little bit more rather than just reacting to the technologies or the gadgets around us so so i just want to riff on something that's that's almost unrelated to the book but but i'll make it related so let's say <laughs> let's say i want to learn to be more social like i want to have more friends in my life uh, or or improve my relationships what's an experiment i can do there like um i start off in the morning my my stretch goal is i'm going to improve my networking improve my relationships uh what's what's some experiments i can so do so i i love this question because i've actually run this one in my own life um cuz i i help um i help coordinate conferences now at the new york times and um when i go to conferences now i force myself in the first 10 minutes at a conference to talk to four people and the reason why is because I hated going to conferences before because it was so awkward to like go make conversation with people I don't know, and it's, you know it's for that all the reasons yeah. everyone hates going into like a, you know the high school lunchroom. And so I ran these experiments and I said, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm the first experiment was I was going to find one person I was going to have a 20 minute long conversation with them. And the problem is that that's a little weird, right? <laughs> like, yeah. you t- and then I They're said, trying to like, hey, I, do you need a orange juice? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what's up, man? And then and then I ran another experiment where I decided to go as and have conversations as quick in as quick succession as I can or only talk to groups. And that was kind of better, but it actually was like kind of awkward because basically it made me seem like kind of like a like the schmoozer, like a little bit of douchey to be honest. <laughs> and so so I kind of eventually landed on this experiment where I said, I'm gonna walk into the room and initially I'm gonna have a couple of conversations in quick succession and then I'm gonna go back to the most interesting person I talked to and I'm going to have a longer conversation with them. And I'll be honest, it has made conferences awesome. And what was your what, what's your goal? Like how how did you achieve your your goal and what was that goal? So, I think my goal was to try and find, have interesting conversations that were real, but to also try and meet people that I wouldn't meet otherwise. Because the problem is that usually I'd go into a room and I would go talk to the one person I knew and I would only meet the people that they knew. And so now when I go into the room, I have this rule rule that in the first 10 minutes I have to talk to four people. And that means that basically I have to find essentially the first four people I can see. Because 10 minutes is so short that you got to cycle through those conversations really quickly. And then after 10 minutes, after the fourth conversation, I allow myself to go back to whoever I liked most from those four. And then I actually ha- end up having this conversation that's longer. And by the way, the person isn't freaked out by me trying to have a long conversation with them because I just chatted with them for just a couple of minutes and then then like moved on to something else and then came back. And does it become meaningful? Like, do you stay in touch with that person? Like, now this is part of your network? I kind of have, yeah. I mean, I, I'm really interested in networking theory, like how, like why people end up networking with the people that they do because it has such huge ramifications on 
on so much of society and so much of our lives. And and so I have tried to like sort of study this a little bit. Like what's the best way to be more social? But to your point, you know, if you wanted to run experiments, I think around being more social, like what if you just said, I'm going to go to some bar I've never gone to and I'm going to force myself to talk to five strangers. Now, it's pro- that it might not be a great experience, but it's not a failure. If it's well, an experiment, you're learning from that data and you might not want to repeat it but you've learned something. You know, it's interesting. We made a joke in the beginning of this, like, oh, your book's like a modern-day Bible, but it doesn't have enlightenment. <laughs> but there is this enlightenment <laughs> aspect, which is being accepting of whatever happens, because even failures have its uh, good points to it. And everything, if you view everything as an experiment and life as a laboratory and failures and successes are, are the way to improve, then it has almost this kind of, like, you know, full life component to it. I think, and I think the other part of the enlightenment is that it forces you to actually ask yourself, like, what do I actually want? Right? Like, like if I go to a bar and I have five conversations with strangers, if I learned something I haven't learned before, like if I meet someone that I wouldn't have met before, and I never, and let's say I never talk to them again, and it's an awkward conversation, like, is that actually such a bad thing? Like, that actually sounds kind of interesting. That's a story that you might tell yourself as something you're proud of. Right. At the end of the day, like. There is no definition of productivity. There's only thinking and forcing yourself to ask, what does productivity mean to me right now? What does it mean? What do I really want to do today and this weekend with my life? Well, you know, and that that's related to another part of your book. And, and there's, by the way, there are so many parts of your book that are interesting. It's really kind of an aggregation of these productivity tools rather than a, a silver bullet, like you mentioned earlier. But I, I want to talk about motivation. The one thing about motivation that I want to talk about is you talk about personal motivation, but motivation also at the organizational level. And so let's say a, a factory floor, for instance, how a manager can make the employees who are doing this drudgery work more motivated. And a lot of it is about pushing control and choice down as low as possible so that even an employee on the assembly line out of thousands can stop the entire assembly line. It gives him a feeling of control. It makes him motivated. And actually, uh, you compare Toyota cars versus old GM cars, and you show why uh, Toyota became more efficient and productive and so on by, by pushing power down. But how can I do this personally? How can I How can I make myself more motivated personally without... Uh, uh, being on an assembly line and having overlords tell me what to do. <laughs> well, so I think the first thing, I think there's basically sort of two key principles to motivation that we know from the neurology of motivation. The first is it, people tend, if people can translate a chore into a choice, if they can somehow find some sense of control in asserting themselves into some task, it becomes much, much easier to motivate. And my favorite example of this is, because we've all felt it, is you're driving down the freeway, you're stuck in traffic, a traffic jam, you see some exit over there, right? And you know it's going to take just as long to get home on that ex- if you take that exit as if you stay in the traffic jam, but your brain keeps on urging you to take the exit, right? Because you want to take control. This is actually That's part fascinating. Of, that it, does happen to me It all happens the all the time. This is actually a neurological response that's very well documented Why? and very well understood because it's a part of the brain known as the striatum that's linked to the basal ganglia. It's one of the older parts of the brain. And our brain has this inherent desire to take control if it's trained to enjoy the emotional rewards of taking control. That's how we generate motivation. Motivation comes out of our striatum and in part our basal ganglia. And we trigger that by taking control or asserting ourselves, finding a choice that makes us feel like we are participating in this instead of just passively following someone else's orders, even if that's just the orders of like being in a traffic jam. 
Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of, because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. 
But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H I M S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS for now. Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. So your chore when you got this book deal was to start chapter one of this book. And how did you turn? And it and even though it was a choice for you to uh, pitch this book and get the proposal done, and and the editor, you know, said, "Hey, this is a great idea. You should do this book. Uh, we'll pay you." Uh, once you had to sit down to do chapter one, it was no longer a choice. It was a chore. The choice had happened before. How did you turn that chore of actually sitting and writing into a choice? Well, so that's a great example because I actually struggled initially with this book. I was like totally. I just written a series of the times that had won the Pulitzer and it had taken a lot of time. And I was actually way more burnt out than I to- understood. And I would go and I would sit up. I like my- how you threw in the Pulitzer there. <laughs> <laughs> nice job. <laughs> Not to, it wasn't even a humble brag. It was just like, <laughs> ah, I want a Pulitzer. But, but, I was having, having trouble focusing. But, but that's the thing is it was like a big year for me, right? It was like everything was going right. And like I would sit at my desk and just, it was like agony. I could not. I could not get anything done. I was so burnt out. And so what I did is I started this system where I would basically try and find one thing in the morning that I could get excited about and choose to do it. And sometimes that meant not having really any connection to the book. Like what? Well, okay, so some mornings, like, uh, I would, like, plan a vacation with my wife. And, like, I would just say, like, look, I'm going to spend two hours to plan this vacation because, like, I need something to help me rejuvenate. Sometimes, though, it would be like there's this one idea that doesn't really – I don't understand how it fit into the book, but I'm going to indulge this curiosity, and I'm just going to call up three experts to ask them about this idea. Shipping containers. I became obsessed with shipping containers. I thought it was going to end up in the book. I probably spent a month and a half researching Malcolm McLean, the the inventor of the modern-day shipping container. Not a word of it appeared in print. And, and I, I saw you mention that kind of a, near the appendix of the book. Yeah. Um, and I was it, I, originally I was going to ask you because if you had included that, 
so so the whole idea was this guy was single-mindedly focused on his whole life on shipping containers. It's one thing. And that and his kind of why in life was to make shipping more efficient. And he was he did nothing else. But earlier in the book, you mentioned what the ideal motivated employee has is five projects going simultaneously. And so I felt like that came in contrast with that. That's uh, why Malcolm thing. That's why Malcolm McLean didn't end up in the book, right? Except for this kind of footnote in the appendix of this uh, interesting story I found that I didn't use. This is exactly for that reason. Because we do find that some people have these motivation systems or these productivity systems that work for them, but doesn't work universally. And, and that's totally okay. In fact, we find that the most productive people, they cycle through different systems. They figure out what works for them. You know, in terms of the writing, what, what's interesting to me there is it reminds me, let's, let's say hypothetically you had outlined the book, uh, which I'm assuming you did at some point, but maybe not. Um, when you start writing, one way you could have choice is, okay, if you get a little bored at one part, you could set that aside and go move on to the next point in the outline. That's exactly so right. So that's a choice. Well, and, and this gets to the second element of motivation, right? Because making a choice oftentimes isn't enough for something that's a really big project. To to really motivate yourself, you have to link what you're doing to some deeply held value or aspiration or something you actually care about. And so this, this is like your why. This is your why. And, and one of the best examples of this, I was talking to this one researcher. I mean, he's actually a cancer researcher for the book. And, and he said, look, I hate grading students' papers. It is the most boring thing I've ever done. So, so in addition to like deciding to start, on, start grading on question three because I look for a choice to make, before I start grading, I sit down and I say to myself, okay, if I grade these students' papers, the university is going to get tuition revenue. And if the university gets tuition revenue, then they're going to be able to pay for my cancer research. And if they pay for my cancer research, I'm going to save people's lives. So by grading students' papers, I'm going to save people's lives. Now, it's not like someone with a PhD needs should be have to tell themselves that, but he actually has to tell himself that. And this is the point: is that oftentimes it's very easy to lose sight of the why, to 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 lose track of why we're doing something, how it links up to our deepest values or our biggest aspirations or what we actually want to do with our life. So that was the other thing I did with the book: is I started ha- having this conversation every morning with myself, where I'd say, "Look, why am I writing this thing? Right? I I got a book. I got the book deal. Like." But why? Like, what do I actually want to say with this? And what I came away with was, I am personally frustrated by some things in my life, and I want to solve them, and I think other people are frustrated by them, and our lives can be better if we understand what the answers are. Well, well, I think that's a really important thing that, um, you know, and I think a lot of people uh, don't realize this, both among authors and readers, uh, that advice is often autobiography. So when you're writing a book, you know, better, faster, smarter, or the power of habit. It could be, be my guess is, is because you want to be better, faster, smarter. (laughs) And the book is kind of this intense way to explore it and using your skills to monetize it and help other people and so on. So, so did you find yourself after writing this book better, faster, smarter? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Like, and, what's and, changed for you? Well, well, let me talk a little bit about like what happened before the book, which is that you know. So, I was having this great year. The Power of Habit was doing better than I expected it to. It was like a, a bombshell bestseller. How did that make you feel? I just, I'm sorry to interrupt, but what? like that was like the hugest bestseller. You must have been ecstatic. I no, I was in. I was. I was really lucky and I was working on the Apple series that did the at the times at the same time. Pulitzer Prize. The Pulitzer Prize, right. 
And I would come home every night and like tell my wife, like, if this is what success feels like, like sign me up for more failure. Like this is like, it was killing me. Like I would come home and I would have 150 emails I had to answer. And my kids would like, my kids basically barely saw me. I felt like I was like missing opportunities all the time. I was, it was literally one of the most miserable years of my life was right after. And and that's the thing is that like when I started working on this book, I, I was thinking like, <laughs> there, this, there must be a better way. There must be some secrets because I know people who get more done and they seem happier than I am. It doesn't seem like it should make sense that when everything I've worked so hard for is finally coming together, that it would make my life worse. And so that's exactly what I was trying to figure out. So, so that first year after Power of Habit started doing well, I felt exceptionally lucky and I felt incredibly stressed out. And I started reporting this book in large part to try and figure out what should I be doing differently so that I so that I can get these things done that seem important to me and it doesn't feel like it comes at the cost of spending time with my family or with my kids or my sanity or doing things that I actually enjoy. Because I see these people around me and they seem to get so much done and they seem amazing and they seem to have time for the things they love alongside of it. So did you actually start doing this? Like, And I'll, I'll repeat some of the things we've talked about. So experimenting a little more, yep. maybe mini experiments, um, providing yourself with more choices, uh, so each event can, you can be structured as a choice rather than chore. Um, and then finding your why, like, why am I responding to these emails? Why am I working on this next book? Did you, but, but again, I asked, did you use this to justify spending less time with the family <laughs> <No>. or <laughs> did you experiment and cho- choose in such a way that you could actually do both? So, so what I did is I, I decided to make many of those things into a device that involved my family. So every Sunday night, my wife and I have a conversation about the upcoming week and I vi- try and visualize a little bit each day and I'll tell her what my goal is for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. This takes like literally like 10 minutes, right? It's not it's not a big deal. But like just to get myself a little bit focused on exactly what I want to get done. Then I write a to-do list. And at the top of my to-do list, I put my smart goal or my stretch goal for whatever that week is. But I also put a couple of big stretch goals. Like what do I want to do over the next month, the next year? Just to get myself to rem- to think a little bit, like am I actually prioritizing correctly or am I running after stuff that like I don't really give a shit about and then I'll write underneath the smart plan, right? What am I going to do first thing as, as I sit at my desk? Again, this takes like maybe 10 minutes. It's not like a big thing. But because I'm doing it with my wife, and, and now we've started including our kids because they're old enough that we do it around the – we have Sunday dinner together. Because we do it together, it's, it's not only something that's kind of like fun to talk about because I can teach my kids and tell them about my life. It's also like they keep me honest. Like I'll say something about like, oh, my goal for Thursday is X, and my wife will say like, that's not your goal. Like, that's the dumbest goal I've ever heard in my entire life. Like, what's an example where she well, said like, that? Like, I was like, I was like, oh, I, I, there's this memo I really want to write. And, like, my goal, is, like, as I'm visualizing my week on Thursday, like, I need to get the thing done by Thursday. So what do I need to set aside Thursday morning? I need to set aside, like, two hours and turn off my email. And she was like, look, if it's this project we've been talking about. And she's like, if you write that memo, like, all that's going to happen is that you're going to give it to the Times and they're going to tell you to execute on it. And, like, you don't actually want to do that. Like, what you actually want to do is you want to, like, give this to someone else. So you should have one of your colleagues write the memo and get excited about it. Because if you're coming up with all the ideas, they're going to ask you to do it. And she was exactly right, right? Like, I just needed someone to challenge me a little bit and say, like— Okay, what if you challenge back? Like, look, I still want to—I don't want the Times to think I'm too distracted with book writing. I want to still rise up at the Times and be the best reporter I can be. Oh, I challenge— What if you push back? (laughs) That's that's exactly what we do. I mean, literally, like, we— 
it is not uncommon for me to be like, no, you don't know anything about me, <laughs> right? <laughs> but but I think that's the point is that like is that it's actually it, oftentimes debating with our friends is a contemplation device. In fact, Richard DeCrebney, the guy who was piloting Qantas Flight 32 in that chapter, who ended up landing this plane that was like, had this huge mechanical accident in midair, he's actually this really combative guy. Like, I've never had a conversation with him where it has not ended with us arguing with each other. That's funny. But the thing is that he, by arguing, that's his contemplative device that pushes him to think about his mental models, that pushes him to think about how he thinks about the world. And he actually gets me to think more about the world. So mental models is a really important part of this because that's how you you build up this, as you call it, a mental representation in advance of the events that are going to happen in the week, how it fits within your choices, how it fits within your why, how you're able to experiment around it, other things that you talk about in the book. Um, How do you... um, you know, you kind of have to build the habit, to use the word, of of coming up with these mental representations. Absolutely, absolutely, and and it's something that usually the easiest way to do it is to get in the habit of telling yourself stories about yourself. And we all do this to some respect, right? When you have a, a big phone call coming up, or like some like meeting you're really stressed out about, you like start replaying it in your head, right? Or the or the fight you had with you know your wife, and you think, oh, I should have said X or I should have said Y. We're all in the habit of actually telling ourselves stories about ourselves and about what's going on. And the key is rather than making that just responsive to things that are really stressful, is to get in the habit of just doing it when you're driving in the car. So as you're thinking to yourself, as you visualize kind of like, what's the story of like today? If, if I'm telling the story of today, what do I, how does that story begin? What's the middle? What's the ending? And, and if we get in that habit and we know that the most productive executives do exactly this, so do, so do professional athletes. If we get in the habit of telling ourselves a story of what we expect, it helps our brain allocate what I, they, what we should pay attention to and what we can safely ignore. So, so, or, or reschedule. So if I want to, let's say I want to um, focus on, oh, this fight I had, uh, but I'm right in the middle of a podcast, I could say, listen, right now I'm going to focus on the podcast, but I promise myself three hours from now when I'm about to go to sleep, I'll, I'll replay that argument. Absolutely. And you know Does what? Does that work? Yeah, yeah. And the more that you're in a habit, the more you'll trust yourself to actually do that, right? So the question is, like, if you look at Bill Clinton, they always said he had this amazing ability to kind of segment his life and not get distracted by like what's going on at home while he's at work. Mm. Um, and, and they, they said that as, as a negative thing, but the guy did become president of the United States. Like it, when we begin to trust in our ability to manage the stories inside our heads better, to manage those mental models, we, 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 we begin to lean into our capacity to schedule when we think about things. And that's exactly it is you don't want to be distracted. You don't want to be distracted by caring about what your boss thinks of you when you're in a meeting with your boss. But you might want to be distracted by it two hours later when you're reviewing that meeting. It's it's so interesting because this is related to events that happened to me today. So earlier today, I apparently did something that was against my lease. So literally, <laughs> I got thrown out of my apartment today. I have to vacate my apartment. I just Oh my gosh. Yeah, oh, I'm was, sorry. No, it's okay. It actually works out for the best. But I was worried that this is going to distract me when I'm in my podcast with, with Charles, but we're having such a fun time and it has not distracted me. And now it's even given me a better technique, which is I'm going to think about this tomorrow morning, like on a Saturday, <laughs> and then I could deal with it then. Well, and I'll bet you that when you were thinking about this podcast, because you, you were talking about how you were preparing for it, I'll bet you that you were engaged in building a mental model, telling yourself a story of kind of how is this conversation, even if you're not aware that you're doing it, how do I want this conversation to proceed, right? Like, where do I think we're going to start? How, how do I imagine roughly we'll, we'll get to this point and to that point? It, you build 
built a mental model of how you expect this to go. And as a result, your brain can kind of say, oh, I'm going to rely on that mental model, on that narrative that I've been telling myself. I'm going to rely on it to say, I don't have to think about the apartment right now. Instead, I can focus on what's going on. That's, that's exactly true. I was very focused on building my mental representation of the beginning, the middle, and the end of this. It's great. And, and it's, so, it's a powerful tool. And that, so I, I did want to ask you also about... Your style in writing this, I love this particular style, and it's very Malcolm Gladwellian, if you want. <laughs> it's also similar to the Freakonomics style, but all these guys were great journalists who became great book writers, and the style works because these are all best-selling books. But it's essentially, you remove yourself as a character in the book and focus on, from the ground up, again, not the principles you're trying to say, but the the stories behind the men and women who best represent these principles. And I really appreciate that style. So for instance, oh, you thanks. mentioned the um, the airplane pilot who, you know, saved, you know, had this huge mechanical disaster, saved it. You focus from almost like telling, it's like he's the superhero and you're telling his origin story, then what happened, and then it's a, it's a you know, rise and fall of tension. So it's a great storytelling style. But then at the end... You, you start telling me the most fascinating thing of all, which is your personal story and how you dealt with writing this book using all of these techniques. And I love that personal aspect too. Why do you think, do you think you would write a book with more personal stories and how you've used like the power of habit, how you've used this to, to then maybe um, discover the next thing as opposed to relying on the scientific research and then the people who best represent that scientific research? You know... <sighs> I'm not sure that I would, and I guess I guess this is why. So, so we know that people. The reason why I tell stories is that we know that people can remember and understand ideas better when they're situated in stories. Yes, right. It's it's much easier to grasp onto something that has a beginning, middle, and end. Which is why your book works. Uh, Outliers works. Freakonomics. Exactly. Works. Exactly. We love reading stories, and it's a it's a system that plugs into our head. But the story is always in service to the idea, right? There's lots of details about Richard DeCrebney or about Annie Duke or about— Great story. Love the Annie Duke story. Or, or about the making of Frozen, which we talk about. Great story. There's lots of details that we don't include because the elements of the story that I include are the elements that are in service to the idea. It's a simplification of what actually happened in real life. But when it comes to my own life, I don't know that I can trust myself to simplify— sufficiently. But why though? Because you've already admitted to me several quasi failures that you work through and the techniques from the book that you use to work through them. And I, and I love those stories too, just as much as the Annie Duke story. I, Are you afraid? Like, again, I think it's a journalistic thing where you, uh, the journalist removes himself from the story. I'm just curious about the writing style. I think it's because if I was to write about myself, I would have to make myself a character that is not actually me. Ah, And that's actually, that's, that's, Okay, but but the difference between a memoir and everything else is that in a, a memoirist is willing to say, "I'm going to tell you a story that is not actually a complete story that's that has loose ends because our lives have loose ends, right?" If I was to write a story about your life, I could make you into a character. I could find the elements of your life that illustrate some idea I care about, but I can't actually capture you because if it's a complete story, if it's a story with a beginning, a middle, and end, it's not. It's not accurate to who you really are because our real lives don't fit a narrative structure. Our real lives are complicated and they're chaotic and things happen and it's only in retrospect that we figure out cause and effect and maybe we we misremember everything because we want a tidy little package. 
When I write about myself, and I think this is true of people who write about themselves, either you make yourself into a character who's very similar to but not actually who you really are, or you write a memoir. And the thing about a memoir is a memoir isn't in service to an idea. A memoir is in service to an, an experience. That's a, that's a good point. All right. I, I, I agree with that. And look, you can't argue with success. Like your book, uh, b- both your books, The Power of Habit, uh, Better, Faster, Smarter, and and all of these other books in that style that, that we spoke about before uh, are huge, massive bestsellers. And you all come out of like the New York Times somehow. So <laughs> I can't argue with success. So it's great. Well, but you can though. I actually think that arguing with success is a good idea because I actually do worry a little bit. I, I I worry that we lean on story too much, right? And I, I'm sure you found this in your own writing that you can find a great story that makes an idea seem profound that isn't as deep as it should be. And that's actually the – that's why I, I work with this editor named Andy Ward who's amazing. And the number one comment that he s- sends back is he's like, I just kind of feel like this is bullshitty. And that's what I want is because you can write around a weak idea with a good story. But at the end of the day, you should judge things on like, is the, I- is the idea something that you put in your pocket and that changes how you think? Well, it's it's interesting because your stories really did – like. Again, the story of of Annie and poker uh, really made me think uh, differently about probabilistic thinking and how useful it is. Your stories about uh, experimentation, your stories about um, pushing, you know, turning chores into choice, your stories about mental representation, your stories about finding the why. There's all these aspects of the book that by themselves I probably would not have remembered, but the fact that you wrapped it in stories allowed me to then explain to my kids, okay, here's how you become more motivated or more productive. Like, I just had this huge discussion with my kids about your book. So, oh, yeah? And I was able to use these stories. It was great. So let me ask you something about your kids and, and your relationship with them. Like, how, do you have a, a mental model? Like, like, if I ask you, what's your goal with your kids? You know, that's a, that's a great question because it's, it's sort of what's the goal of parenting. Yeah. The p- goal of parenting is not to make them smart or wealthy or, or even happy because that's almost out of your control. But you just simply want them to be good adults. You want them to, um, you know, be able to handle the, the difficulties that come up in life, and you want them to be good to other people. I think. I think you know you want to have as little expectation as possible. So for me, I say, okay, if they're just good human beings, then I've achieved my goal. And but what was interesting in your book that I thought a lot about with my kids is you talk a little bit about mindset, and you're you're drawing it from Carol Dweck's book, mindset, but kind of the fixed mindset versus the growth mindset. I see one mindset in one of my kids and the other mindset in the, in the other kid. Huh. And I think that's a very useful section for people to read in your book, particularly if they're parents or if they're teaching something, because the growth mindset is such a valuable way to approach life as opposed to the fixed mindset. And it really underlies, uh, you know, it underlines all of the problems in standardized education. It, it hits a lot of issues about politics, education, parenting, my own life. Uh, it's a very valuable section as well. It's a very, it, it, and and it, it's great to hear you say that. And, and what's interesting is, so w- when I was working on the chapter about decision-making, um, I thought at one point I was going to take it in a different direction. So I was talking to all these researchers who study decision-making, and I would at, end each interview by asking them if they had kids. And many of them said yes. And I would say, like, why did you decide to have kids? Because having a kid is kind of an irrational choice. But they would come up with some reasons. It is a totally irrational choice. Totally irrational choice, right? But they would come up with some reasons. Like, it makes me so happy. I can love so much more. I needed something else to focus on. And then I would ask, so why didn't you adopt? 
Because all of the statistics, not all, many of the statistics out there show that adoption provides just as all the exact benefits that you just talked about. You'll still love them. You still X and Y and Z. You still have something to focus on. But in addition, you're taking someone whose life could be bad and you're making their life good. And they all would say the same thing. And the stats, by the way, don't back this up. But they would say, well, you know, I had like a sister or a friend who adopted and that kid had a bunch of problems. And I didn't want to expose myself to the risk of those problems. And then I would say, okay, so tell me about like your own children. Like, was any of them ever in the hospital? Did any of them ever have any problems? And inevitably they'd say yes, right? Because this is having a kid, a kid has problems. And I would say, okay, if I could take that out of your memory, like how much money would you give me if I could erase from your memory that period when your son was in the hospital? Not not that your son wasn't in the hospital, just that you're not going to experience that hardship. And every single person said, I, I would never give that up, right? Like one of my most precious memories is being with my child when they needed me in the hospital. And so why? Why would we shy? But there's a disconnect there. Why would we shy away from adopting to say, oh, I don't want that hardship, and then say, oh, the hardship with my kids is actually one of the most important memories that I have? I think it gets to this question of, and I'm not saying they're irrational. I, I've made the same choices. I have two natural children. I haven't adopted and, I, and one of my sons was once in the hospital because he got a, an infection in his face, and it was terrifying, and I, I, I wouldn't trade that memory for anything. But the point is that, like, when we think about goals, we tend to default to say, exactly as we were just discussing, like, is it happiness or is it satisfaction or is it X or Y or Z? Productivity and satisfaction and feeling like our life has meaning, they have these very un, unexpected sources and the more that we force ourselves to think about that, to think about trade-offs, to think about doing an experiment and maybe being surprised by the outcome because I thought talking to strangers would make me feel like a jerk and it actually makes me feel like I'm awesome. The more we expose ourselves to things that we don't necessarily know the outcome and we try and force ourselves to make sense of it, that's how we actually learn like who we want to be and what productivity actually is. Well, it, it, it's interesting because I'll take it I'll take it one step further. It's not only how we learn how we want to be, but a very important component of well-being, at least according to positive psychologists, people who study that field, is moving towards uh, both competence and freedom. And so if I'm more productive in what I love to do, not only am I getting more competent, but I'm giving myself more time to pursue an experiment with other things that can increase my freedom. I could potentially start another business if I have more time, or I could, you know, have more freedom to spend with my kids and and whatever. So I think the reading your book and the and the aspects to find there do in, actually lead to an increase in, in well-being if I am pursuing freedom and competence and and better relationships and so on. I think that's totally right. And I think at the end of the day, like that's that's at least for me has been the biggest takeaway is that like what is actually productive is learning about myself and learning what I genuinely enjoy. Because it's surprising. It's surprising what, what I like about life. And you can, you can run away from it or you can try and like adhere to what, pe- what life tells you you should enjoy. But saying like, I don't need that kind of success or I really enjoy having time to spend with my kids, even if like the t- like it's just watching TV together. Like knowing that about yourself that helps you make a choice as to what is productive and how do I actually use my time. And knowing you have the tool set 
to get that. That's get exactly to that right. Point. That's so, exactly right. So what's your next book going to be about? <laughs> I, I'm not exactly certain. I, I'm going to take a little bit of time to, to catch my breath. I, although I will say the thing I've been interested in recently partic- is why, why setting aside formal power, if you look at soft power, why are some people more persuasive or influential than others? Mm. Right? Now, there are books about this yeah. in the area of like copywriting and marketing and so on, because that's a, a common topic in, the, in those areas. But I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, why has the Black Lives Matter movement taken off? Some, some of that ha- clearly has to do with time, right? There's probably time and opportunity, but the issue of of whose voices seem to to spark radicalization in other people that seems interesting to me. Yeah, to, that to, is interesting. To be honest, like my whole career is actually about one question, which is how does radicalization work? Like, why do people change? Why does someone get exposed to an idea and it changes how they behave and other people get exposed to that same idea and they don't? Or why do some ideas cause many people to change? And other ideas, which are just as legitimate, have no purchase. Because if you think about it, the things that in in social history, the history of humanity, the things that have really mattered tend to be things where people sign on. They get radicalized to an idea. That idea might be democracy. It might be marriage. It might be um, the – it might be like religion. It might be, you know, believing in inequality. But there are people who get radicalized in a, around an idea, and then they say, I'm going to behave differently. And, and there are systems in life that try and s- maintain the status quo, right? It, there, are, sure. there are values. You know, capitalism is a set of values, and, and most of us don't question them. But, but there are these periods when all of a sudden people's minds expand, and they say, there might be a better way. And then they devote their lives to trying to make that better way become real. Even if that's just a matter of like, I don't need to drink anymore, or drinking's fine, or I should get married, or I, I should, I'm the type of person who should never get married. Like, why do people get radicalized around some certain ideas? Because if you can figure out that formula, you can start hopefully making the world a better place. And it's interesting because both in The Power of Habit and Better, Faster, Smarter, a lot of the stories you tell are about people who are either trying to change habits society-wide, you know, like in the case of Claude Hopkins and toothpaste and so on in The Power of Habit, or with Better, Faster, Smarter, the head of Toyota, how does he get, you know, 35,000 employees or more motivated and, and so on. A lot of it is about uh, almost radicalization. Um, how do you get them radically inspired by an idea, a single idea you might have that might not even be a good idea? Right, so, right. And so hopefully we empower the people who have the good ideas. <laughs> well, that sounds like an exciting book. I can't, you know, I'll, I'll give you a book deal myself. You have to write it now. <laughs> tell, I, I appreciate it. As long as I can take a year off to like catch my breath. <laughs> tell me your five favorite books. My five favorite books. So my number one favorite book is Hiroshima by John Hershey, um, which is a great book because it's like a model of how to use narrative storytelling to essentially like change the world. Exactly what we were just talking about. Um, let me think. What are my other favorite books? There's a book by Michael Lewis called The Money Culture, which was a collection of his essays that were put together, yeah, which is like a, it. yeah, it's a fantastic, fantastic book. 
Um, a book called uh, Follow the Story by Jim Stewart, which actually made me decide to become a, a journalist when I was midway through business school. Wow, I don't school. know that one. I know Den of Thieves by him, but not uh, this Follow is, the Story. It's actually a textbook that he wrote for his Columbia journalism course wow. um, that was sort of personally meaningful for me. And then, you know, I like— What about in the research for, for this book? You must have liked Atul Gawande's uh, books or— I love Atul's stuff. You know, to be honest— we, I mean, I read a, I read, I read every, like, I read like a lot of like science fiction. I read a lot of like true crime. I, I try and read everything. Um, I don't, I don't even know. Like, what? What's one science fiction book? Oh, let me think. What have I read recently? I was reading this um series by this. The Morning Star was the last one. It was their like, um. They're fairly cheesy, but I love that's okay. Them. <laughs> I just read Ready Player One. By oh yeah, I liked that. That was a great book. That yeah. was really fun. Um, I'm trying to think what I've read. You know, what I mostly read is I read magazine pieces because I feel like it's like this way. And I read old magazine pieces. I like to I read. Like there's um. I, I'll actually tell you my my favorite magazine stories that, that might be useful for people. There's a piece that Calvin Trillin wrote about um. A woman named Edna Buchanan, who was a crime writer in Florida, and it is one of the best written pieces on the face of the planet. Like you just read it, and it make, just makes you so happy to like see those words slide across your your eye. Oh, I can't wait! Yeah, I'll send you the link to it. It's great. Okay, well, Charles, thanks so much for joining me today on the James Altucher Show. It was super interesting. I personally am applying the principles in your book. And I've already seen the results from it. So congratulations on another successful book. And I can't wait for the next one. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Charles. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com. And get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to make sure you never miss an episode and we have some great episodes coming up, subscribe to the James Altucher Show probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now. And it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for the James Altucher show and click subscribe. It will only take you 30 seconds or less. And if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac burger, McNuggets or McCrispy sandwich, but you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.